everybody. Welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast. For more information on the vision, programs, and news of our church, be sure to check us out at www.newmarketalliance.ca. We'd like to encourage you as well that no podcast, no matter how good, can substitute for the experience of joining together in person at a worship celebration. That's where God really meets people, often through the love and ministry of others. At NAC, we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. Now let's join this week's teaching. We're, we're talking about the one another verses in the Bible. 59 of them as far as I can tell. Love one another, serve one another, greet one another. And um, there's four verses that say something to the effect of we are to instruct one another or teach one another or admonish one another. And the verse that we'll dig in today is, is from Colossians 3. It didn't really fit into the context of the other points of my teaching later, but I really didn't want us to miss this point, especially as we go into worship this morning. Paul says, and keep in mind, this is in the context of teaching and instructing one another. He says, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And so we don't usually associate music and singing with teaching and instructing. But Paul says that our corporate worship has this incredible impact on, on the fellowship of believers. This is, this is one of the ways that all of us actually can play a role in instruction. You know, teachers know this. I know there's at least two teachers in this room. Three, uh, one of the most effective ways to have things stick is through a song. I mean, grade three, Exeter Public School, uh, French, lundi, mardi, mercredi, jeudi, vendredi, samedi, dimanche. A little song, haven't had to use the days of the week. How did I do, Julie? Yeah? Julie's a French teacher. Some of you have learned all 66 books of the Bible through a song. Some of you have memorized scripture, and you don't even know it because it's in a song. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon Like, some of you are old enough to remember these things called overhead projectors. And uh, Glenn, I'll explain them to you later, but the... <laughs> What we would do is we'd put up these acetates of, and we called them scripture and song in the 80s. And it's all up here, baby. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise. Psalm 100. You just sang Psalm 100. You didn't even know it. So when we sing as a church, we usually see all of our singing as being directed toward God and God alone. He is the object of our worship, and, that, and that's true. He is our primary audience as we sing. But you know, I'm kind of coming around to this idea, particularly as we are coming out of isolation, that we, we also sing for each other in a way. We are helping to minister to each other, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't have to teach a class. You don't have to preach a sermon to speak truth to each other. You are edifying and instructing each other. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 5.19. He says, to speak to each other with psalms, hymns, 
and spiritual songs. So don't underestimate the power of, of corporate worship to teach, to encourage, to inspire people to godliness. Music has this incredible power. It has the power to touch us deeply. You know, my, my life has been changed by the right song at the right time. Um, I think of hearing, you know, you two close out their concert with Psalm 40. I, I think of a time I was so discouraged in, in the ministry, and I was unsure if I wanted to even continue. And it was about 16 years ago at Queensway Cathedral in Toronto, and I heard this Irish worship singer, Brian Houston, and he, and he just had his acoustic guitar, and I thought he was singing right to me. I thought he was looking right at me. And he sang, when the ones you love and trust hurt and destroy you, though you may be discouraged, certainly don't think of giving up. When you're broken, when you're wounded, forgive those who persecute you. For it's all right to be broken, and it's no shame to cry. But I do not want you to remain in that place of brokenness. Even though I'm in that place with you, Still, I do not want you to stay there because where you see bones, I see an army. Where you see floods, I see the shore. Where you see dry winds blow, I see a new life grow. Where you see clouds in the way, it is the Lord. And then he goes on to sing, and you need to know that I have been wishing for you, dreaming in you, hoping for you, for my dreams are so much greater than yours and to know my hand in your life this is the greatest prize so much better than recognition this is the pure gold that I'm refining in you that will shine within your soul and your cup will run over and you will see the fruit of your labors and you will not be disappointed forever for your toils and your struggles are not in vain where you see bones I see an army. And suddenly, I was just impacted with the reality that, that God is in control, that it was all in his hands, and, and tears flowed down my eyes, and my heart melted, and I found the courage to continue because of a song, because of a song. I, I've had entire bad weeks turned around just because... God used the right song on a Sunday morning. Can anybody relate? Has God used music to change your life? Some of you have told me what I miss most or, or why I started coming to Knack in the first place was because of the music. And then they usually say, no offense. Yeah, none taken because music is powerful corporate music is 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 powerful it's us preaching to one another and so this is one of the reasons why you need to sing with all your heart uh, because your brothers and sisters in Christ they need it we we need it because of all the all the crud in our lives that we've experienced in this last week we need it because we've got difficult decisions to make. We need it because we're hurting on the inside. We need it because we're struggling with sin. Church is not a spectator sport, y'all. It's, it's not a concert. Those of you that come and sing with passion aren't just praising God. You are lifting up your brother and sister in Christ. You are blessing. 
and ministering in the church. And I, I, I think I've changed my theology on this. Worship isn't just vertical. It's horizontal as well. When you sing with all your heart, you might, you might just be making yourself a vessel for God to use you to touch another life. So why don't we put this into practice? Will you stand with us? asked her first grade son, Jason, what he thought of school. He was new to school in general. And, uh, and now in grade one, he thought he was a seasoned pro. And he'd go, oh, I love school. It's great. And then he, th- he thought for a minute and he goes, well, like except for one thing, I, I don't really like it when Mrs. Decker tries to teach us stuff. And I, I, poor little Jason hasn't figured out that that's basically what school is all about. But could we admit Uh, Even as adults, a lot of us don't like it when someone tries to teach us stuff. We don't want to be told what we don't know. We often don't want to be told how to do things right. We don't want to be shown uh, our ignorance. We don't want to be corrected. And so, so let's look at Colossians 3, 15 to 16 again. And here's what Paul says. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So Jesus gives us this gift of community, with other believers and he calls us to fellowship together and to worship together and to pray together and serve together. And a big part of the reason for this is so that others can actually teach us stuff, you know? And this isn't just about how to change a tire or throw a football in a perfect spiral. We're talking about stuff that is life-changing, stuff that will renew your mind and refill your heart. And Paul calls us to do two important things in this this statement. He calls us to teach and to admonish. Teaching is simply the idea of instructing. Now, the first century idea of teaching was not like this classroom lecture that I'm sort of, of doing right now. He's not talking about just sort of book knowledge or head knowledge. Um, the teaching in this context is very practical. It's to show by example. It's to pass it on. I was talking to my new friend, uh, Daniel, who actually has professional level soccer or what they call in England football. Um, He has that sort of high level experience, but he's also into golf recently. And I, I realized I'm 47 years old. I never have played golf. I mean, I've been to the driving range. I've been to the mini putt, but I've never actually played golf. Now, what I could do is get a bunch of books from the library and look at the pictures of how to hold the club and the diagrams and, you know, what, you know, read about the posture that I should have. Or, you know, I could watch uh, Caddyshack and Happy Gilmore and, you know, maybe try and do the, the running thing. Or 
I could ask Daniel or Keith or Neil or Jim to actually take me golfing and, and show me how it's done. That's the kind of teaching I think that Paul is talking about here. Now, admonish. I like this word. It's not a word that we use uh, in, in regular life, it seems. But the, the meaning here from the Greek is to counsel, to warn, to instruct. It actually literally means to direct someone's mind towards something that needs corrected. Now, th- this is where we have a hard time with it. We don't like to be corrected. And many of us don't like correcting others. And those that actually like correcting others I'm suspicious of because they often don't do it the right way or more importantly, for for the right reasons, okay? Admonishment is not criticism. We aren't trying to put anyone in their place. We don't admonish someone to tear them down. Sometimes people, you know, will talk about constructive criticism and I know what they mean, but it's kind of an oxymoron, right? Like jumbo shrimp or military intelligence, right? The two words that don't fit together. Or at least a critical spirit is never constructive. A critical spirit always tears down. And so when Paul admonished the Corinthians, he did so uh, in 1 Corinthians, he says, not to shame you, but to admonish you as my dear children. Um, I also want you to notice whose responsibility this is to admonish one another. This isn't my job, or at least solely. It's not the responsibility of the elders solely or small group leaders or children's ministry teachers. We are all called to admonish one another. That doesn't mean we all preach necessarily or that we all lead a small group or that we all have... Uh, you know, lead in various responsibilities or authority, but we are called to speak truth in love to each other. So why is this so, so hard? And, and the fact that I'm teaching on this, let's just say, is not ideal, okay? This is not a masterclass where you are sitting at the feet of an expert on this, far from it. I have, because of my title of pastor, because of being a youth counselor 20 years or so ago, I have, have, have been put in a vocational position of having to do this with some regularity. But man, I still feel like a noob. I, I, I don't like it. But if I had to wait until I had mastered something before I could teach on it, you know, I'd have like two messages in my in my quiver, you know? I, so just because I'm not great at this doesn't mean I'm wrong either. Why is this hard? It's hard. Uh, many of us try to avoid this at all costs. I'll bet some of you have been burned by this. You, you muster up the courage to sort of talk to somebody about an area of their life, and it actually damages the re- relationship, maybe permanently. I've noticed this. Our culture is is radically individualistic and morally relativistic. So our culture values individual rights over responsibilities and our culture rejects sort of universal absolute moral standards. So how are you supposed to correct anyone on a moral basis? 
if there isn't really absolute truth. And, and to that, the, the, way, um, the way many people have come from a, a dysfunctional family where uh, confrontation was abused or maybe even come from an, a manipulative church background where the leadership abused confrontation. And it's not surprising then why we shy away from admonishing one another. But listen, authentic Christian community can't consist just of encouragement and affirmation. There's gotta be a place for admonition. I mean, I'm learning that this is one of the signs that we actually truly love someone, that we would be willing to risk rejection willing to risk a broken relationship because we confronted each other for their own good. If, if admonishment is done in the right spirit, with the right motive, using the right method, then the person on the receiving end will be better for it. And if they're mature, they'll actually eventually thank you for it. So where does it start? Before you ever confront someone to admonishment, there needs to be relational peace, okay? Uh, Don't believe me? Try teaching or admonishing someone with whom you have a hostile relationship and see how far you get. Uh, Look at verse 15, and what it says is we should do before we teach an admonishment is let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as members of one body, you were called to peace. Teaching, correction, Admonishment only works when there is a a peaceful, loving relationship. How do you like it when someone tries to correct you and you know they don't, you know, care diddly squat about you as a person? How well do you receive that feedback? Uh, Now, how well do you think it will work in the church when someone is bitter at you, resentful of you, angry with you, and we try to admonish them. You gotta get the relationship right. You gotta be at peace before you go to this deeper level of admonishment. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. That's the truth. The only people that I can do a good job taking correction from are those that I know love me and care for me and have, have uh, my best interests at heart. Even then, even then, because uh, of my sinful nature, because of my fragile ego, it's still difficult, isn't it, to receive. It is motivated by love, always. Biblical admonishment is always motivated by love. Don't confront a brother or sister in Christ if you aren't motivated by love for them. Last week, we started by talking about the granddaddy of all the one another verses, which is love one another. Not just love one another, but agape love one another. Loving one another without strings attached, with doing it sacrificially as Jesus did. Choosing to love one another, whether we felt like it or not. Now, because of our cultural confusion about what love really is or what it really looks like, some of you are gonna be tempted to think that loving people means we're just willing to tolerate anything in the church just to keep the peace, okay? Just so people don't feel bad. 
But does loving one another mean we just kind of turn a blind eye when a brother or sister in Christ could be saved from a lot of harm and grief if we would just muster up the courage to lovingly admonish them? Part of loving each other is, is to have Christian leaders and friends who will notice our spiritual growth, who notice when tough things happen, and then come to us in love, not criticism, to warn us, to teach us. That's why we're told in Ephesians to speak the truth in love. That's really the essence of what it is to admonish one another, is to, is to speak the truth in love. Now, not only that, but you gotta be willing to get dirty in someone else's mess, right? It's more than just saying, get your act together. It's saying, how can I help? How can I walk with you in this? I'll be here for you in the midst of this hard time. In Galatians 6.1, Paul says, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Maybe it sounds counterintuitive, but love says don't let your brother or your sister in Christ wander away. Now, there's something that seems um, inherently confrontational in admonishment. Uh, You're drawing someone's attention to something in their life or their behavior that doesn't seem right or wise. But unlike just sort of throwing that out on social media, uh, biblical one-anothering is grounded in something bigger than our opinions. It's grounded in scripture. It's grounded in the Bible. Look what verse 16 says. We have to do in order to teach and admonish one another. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So admonishing isn't about advancing our own agenda or our opinions. It's, it's rooted in a standard, the standard of God's word. Without God's word, like our admonishment is gonna become personal. It's gonna become subjective. It's gonna be judgmental. It's not about what I think or what I feel, what I want, how I was raised. It's about what God wants and what God says. That's the standard. It's, it's, um, it's not an individual preference. Um, uh, you know, if something isn't directly taught in scripture, then you gotta allow freedom with that and accept one another in love. But if it's a clear violation of God's word, if it's a false doctrine, if it's a sinful behavior, and you love this person, then the the proper response is to teach and to admonish. The word Paul uses for dwell here, it means to to feel at home or be at home. So is God's word at home in your life? You know, is scripture at home in your heart? Or is it a stranger? Would you have to get up and, and, and clean the house for it to be coming as a guest? In order to ever teach and admonish in love, God's word is at home in our heart. It's the only standard that we use. So, are your admonishments scripturally grounded? Is it just your tradition or simply, well, this is what grandpa said was the gospel or this is the way we've always done it. 
There are lots of things we think are biblical which are not simply because we grew up hearing or thinking these things. We've got to know the difference between the absolutes of God's word and the non-absolutes of society or our own opinions and feelings. Paul wrote that all scripture is God-breathed and that it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And, and, and Hebrews, it says, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So we, we wanna be sure that it's God's word that is presenting the truth, that it's, that it's grounded in this call to change. And we have to admonish, admonish unhypocritically. Like, that is, you're living a life in pursuit of holiness, a Christ-like life, and you gotta be mature enough, like Jesus said, that you remove the log from your own eye before you go after the speck in someone else's eye. It's the humility to clean up your own act before you try to clean up someone else's, right? I'm not talking about being perfect, otherwise nobody would ever say anything remotely difficult because that's an excuse the devil uses on both sides, right? He'll say to you, what do you have? What right do you have to speak into someone's life? You're far from perfect. And he'll say the same thing to the person that you're lovingly admonishing. He'll say, what right does he have to speak into your life? He's far from perfect. And of course we are, but we still teach and we admonish with integrity by doing it in love, by checking our motives, by checking our hypocrisy. Because we gotta remember the purpose of admonishment, the purpose of correction. Let me read from Ephesians where he says, this is Apostle Paul, this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. Our goal is to help one another in Christ-like maturity. That's a worthy purpose. But remember, today you may be on the giving end, tomorrow you might be on the receiving end of admonishment. So we do it humbly, we do it lovingly. And, and I wish I, I could give you sort of this perfect formula for effective admonishment Honestly, it's more of an art than a science. It's risky because it involves all these variables. One variable is the fact that each of us are, are unique. We're wired differently. Uh, both the one giving the admonishment and the one receiving it. We're all just different. Some like to, some like to have the truth, you know, just hit me with the truth. Others are more like, hey, could you ease into this a little bit? Um, other variables include the seriousness of the issue that you're talking about or the history of your relationship or the level of spiritual maturity involved, just to mention a few. But if I could, I know it's coming from somebody who finds this really hard, but if I could give you some principles here, 
uh, that would help us one another, each other well. And the first thing is, if we're gonna admonish each other, we need to prayerfully prepare beforehand. You know, instead of reacting impulsively in the moment, I think we need God's wisdom and strength, and we, and we should never engage in spiritual activity without prayer. I think spontaneous admonition is rarely effective because we often are acting in anger or emotion. So, so take the time to pray for the right attitude or the right perspective, wisdom, timing, that, you, that God would prepare your heart, prepare the person's heart. Second thing is admonition should be done face-to-face and in private. What I've been doing lately is admonishing strangers on the internet in public and uh, you know, saying things like, well, that sounds kind of racist. And how do you think that goes over? It's got, <laughs> I'm learning again. Proper admonishment is done privately and face-to-face. Um, I, don't, I, I don't tell others what I think is wrong with you and what I think you should be doing. I go to you directly and not with an audience. You know, Jesus said, if your brother sins, you go and show him his fault just between the two of you. And if that doesn't work, there's a whole other process that we can talk about later. But just practically speaking, privacy makes it easier for the other person not to react defensively, you know, to save face in front of other people. And face-to-face is so important if, if you truly want to be understood. I think you know this, but the words we use are such a small part of communication in general, like facial expression and tone and, and posture and all these nonverbals communicate often more than the words themselves. So don't admonish anyone over text or email or even the phone if you can avoid it. You're, you're just asking for miscommunication. Third thing I would suggest is that except in, in very severe situations, don't insist on immediate acceptance from the person. You know, often it takes time to get past the initial bristling of our egos to, to be able to hear God's voice. I was a young elder out West and in a time of pastoral transition, I was sort of uh, put in charge of a, of a staff relationship. And uh, it felt weird because I was younger than this staff, but there were things that needed to be talked about, hard things. And I could always count on this person rejecting it, you know, in, in the moment. And then go away, you know, sleep on it, come back and say, yeah, I'm, you're right, I'm sorry. But in the moment, you know, it was just as predictable as anything, sort of all defensive and brusly. And then they needed time to let it sink in. For, so, so don't insist on it being accepted right away. If we're getting a lot of resistance and argument from that person, you might want to just back off and say something like, why don't you take some time to think about this and pray about it, and then we'll, we'll revisit this conversation. And to that point, you know, Am I my brother's keeper? Um, am I my sister's keeper? 
yeah, actually, you are. We're supposed to be a family and be watching out for each other as a loving family would. But listen, and here's my fourth point. You are not their judge. You are not their watchdog. You are not the hall monitor. You are not the Holy Spirit, okay? You be obedient to say what needs to be said, what God has put on your heart, but you leave the results to God, okay? So, so before you ever admonish someone, you might do well to ask yourself questions like, do I have fellowship with this person? Do I truly love this person? Is our relationship characterized by peace? Am I uh, truly building this person up or, or tearing them down? Um, have I taken the log out of my own eye? Have I modeled the same level of maturity that I'm expecting from them? Uh, am I doing this for the right reason? Do I really want to help the other person? Or do I, do I just feel like I want to be important? Or do I just want them to do it my way? Now, there's a second part to all of this, so let me ask you. Are you a person who actually welcomes correction in your life? Proverbs 12.1 says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. Ugh. The person who wants to be wise is actually gonna welcome admonition. It, it, in... in Modern self-help parlance, you could say they are people who have a growth mindset. And here's a couple um, principles, I guess, for those receiving admonition. First thing I would say is that you would actually take the initiative and invite feedback from trusted people. Now, when you have a relationship with someone where it is explicitly verbalized that you are allowed to speak truth into their life and they're allowed to speak truth into your life, um, you'll find your relationship will go to new levels. Something I did a few weeks ago, and forgive me if this sounds self-serving, but the only real life illustrations I have are the things that happened to me. And believe me, I have lots of personal illustrations in this area of what not to do that, that don't paint me in a very positive light. But a few weeks ago, I asked if our small pastoral team would speak into my life about a particular area that I knew I was struggling with. And I gave them a week to mull it over and I suspect it was hard. I don't know about you, but I always think it's harder to give hard feedback than to receive it, but I trust them and I love them and they are wise and they are kind and they lovingly told me some hard things, probably, um, probably even harder in that I, I hold some delegated authority over them, uh, positionally speaking. But in that moment, they were my friends and they were my counselors. And then I said, okay, now give me the last 10%, which is like saying, you know, don't hold back that last hard thing that you need to say. So I'm grateful, I'm grateful for that. But how much easier is it when we invite people into offering us counsel and admonition? Second thing, remember, admonition is a helpful course correction, okay? It is not a personal rejection. It doesn't threaten your very identity. You gotta remember you are still a child of the king, deeply loved, um, even if there's some behavior that needs addressing. 
I mean, as, as children who receive discipline, like, um, that doesn't affect your identity as being a child, does it? Just, just discipline happens out of love. Third thing I would say is look for the truth in the admonition that you're receiving rather than just excuses to reject it. I mean, this runs counterintuitive, I know, to our natural inclination. When someone rebukes us, like we creatively find ways to, to discredit their rebuke. I can think of a couple times in my life where I was literally invited to give feedback, gave it, and then received all kinds of angry defensiveness. And I, I think the wise person is humbly looking for the truth in a tough conversation. I, I wanna be the kind of person who quickly receives the truth and, and maybe you don't agree with everything, but you are looking for what, what is the truth in this critique that I'm receiving. And finally, when someone admonishes you, and this is the hard part, I think you ought to thank them for, for loving you enough to do something hard. You know what Proverbs 27 says is that it's better to have open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted but an enemy multiplies kisses. So as we close, is it worth it? Is it worth it to receive admi admonition with humility? Even when everything within you cries out to reject it? Is it worth it to admonish others? Even when everything within you would rather turn a blind eye to it? I guess it depends on what we value. Um, do we... Is our highest priority our own comfort? Then it's definitely not worth it. But if we value spiritual integrity before God, if we value healthy relationships with others, then it's worth every sacrifice that we have to make. I wanna thank you for worshiping with us. I wanna thank those who are watching online for worshiping with us. It's, it's good to be able to come to church. It's good to be able to worship at church. But more than that, um, as we go to school, go to work tomorrow, could we go now and be the church?